we pray. Heavenly Father, may the struggles, the difficulties that we experience, may they make us softer, not harder, more gracious, not less, make us better, not bitter. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is a difficult subject, even for Christians. And I want to start by, in a sense, summarizing what you have in your service folder as the theme of the day. It has been a philosophical and theological problem forever. It's called the problem of pain. And two questions are asked. If God really loves us, why does he allow us to experience pain? And the second question is, if God is really powerful, why doesn't he exhibit the power to remove our pain? Well, in John chapter, those two statements, those two questions are answered because we're told quite clearly that Jesus loved Lazarus. And yet Lazarus is ill and will die. And that is difficult for his two sisters. And we also learn from John chapter 11 that eventually Jesus has the power to raise Lazarus from the grave, to defeat the most formidable and fearsome foe, death itself. So it's not a question of power. So what is the point? What is the purpose of pain in our lives? Well, I had to jump back to John 9 to get two reasons that are wrong. And this is the episode of where Jesus and his disciples meet this man born blind. And they ask the question, who sinned? Whose fault is this? His or his parents? That betrays what most people think and how they approach pain. I want to call the second one, thinking that it's his parents' fault, I want to call that the anger track. Someone is to blame for our pain, and we're angry. Now, in certain situations in life, an individual can be the cause of your pain. But anger ain't going to solve anything. We extend this in the church to God. We're angry at God. Why is he allowing this in my life? Why am I having to go through this? Why have I entered into the furnace of struggle and suffering? The second track which is even more prominent, especially amongst Christians, 
is the guilt track. I'm suffering, so I must have done something wrong. I'm hurting, so God must be telling me I've made a big boo-boo. And we feel guilty. Now, you're going to learn this in the next section in the sermon, but let me just say neither one of those is right. In John 11, Jesus says Lazarus' illness that will lead to his death and to his sister's great sorrow is to display the glory of God. If you've been here very long, you know that in the Gospel of John, the glory of God is always the cross. So how is Lazarus' death going to display the glory of God? Most people immediately go to Jesus restoring Lazarus to life. But if you want to read John 11 this week, look at the final verses in that chapter. The Jews in Jerusalem realize they've got a tempest in a teapot on their hands. That if they let Jesus go on, everyone will believe in him. And they can't have that, so they plot to kill him. It's through raising Lazarus from the grave that Jesus is going to experience his death and grave. I want to talk just a bit more about the glory of God. We have a biblical example it's in Genesis, and it deals with Joseph. Uh, Joseph was a spoiled brat. And his brothers were really irritated with him. He was his dad's favorite, and Joseph didn't seem to mind at all. And so at age 17, Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery, taken down to Egypt. Well, through a set of circumstances, Potiphar's wife lying that Joseph tried to rape her, Joseph is thrown into prison. Okay, let's say he might be 18 by this time. Do you know how long he was in prison? And by the way, these are not club med. This is not comfortable or... A tolerable situation. Prisons in Egypt were awful, awful. He was in prison until age 30. That's an awful bunch of suffering. And then he becomes the vice regent, the second in command in Egypt. And there's going to be seven years of plenty and they pass. So now we're up to 37. And then there's two years of famine. The total will be seven, but after the second year, Jacob and his sons up there north 
They don't have food. They can't tolerate this anymore. So they go down to Egypt to get some grain. And you know how the story goes. Lots of in and outs and intricacies and tricks and schemes and so forth. But eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and says, go home and get dad. Bring everybody down to Egypt. We have plenty of food. So now he's about 39. Uh, Jacob, once he's in Egypt, lives another 17 years. I mean, this is a large amount of time. And when Jacob finally dies, the brothers say, now Joseph's going to get us for what we did to him. Do you remember his famous words? You guys meant it for evil. God meant it for good. All that suffering in prison and estrangement from my family, all those years, God was accomplishing his good the saving of many people. God was orchestrating his love. Now I want to give you a historical example, and this is Luther. Luther had a timid conscience, and he was convinced that God was out to get him, that God was angry with him. And so he entered the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. And his mentor, his confessor, was a man by the name of Johann von Staupitz. And Luther would come to Staupitz and he would confess his sins for hours. And as he was walking away from the confessional, he'd remember another one and back he would go. And Staupitz finally had enough of that. He said, Martin, I can't help you. The torment, the struggle, the suffering you are experiencing because you're not convinced or certain that God loves you. He says, go to the Bible, go to the cross, go to Jesus. I can't fix you. Well, as a result, in 1508, von Staupitz sort of massaged the situation, so Luther became a Bible teacher. And of course, if you're a Bible teacher, you've got to study the Bible. And slowly but surely, all of that pain he was experiencing internally started to melt away. And in 1518, the Augustinian monks met in Heidelberg. And Luther was assigned to write a paper. And he wrote the Heidelberg Disputation. And I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, and then I'll explain it, because at first glance, it just doesn't makes sense. But in Thesis 18, Luther says, that man is no theologian, 
who sees the invisible things of God in the things that happen, the things that are visible, creation and history. Number 19, but that man is a theologian who sees the invisible, manifest, wonderful things of God in the cross and suffering. Okay, want me to explain that? It's really kind of simple. God reveals himself where he hides himself, but he hides himself where he reveals himself. Now you understand, right? You know, you people in Tillamook and the Oregon coast and, and those people on the other side of the hill up in the mountains, they all think they are closest to God when they're in creation. Have they ever been in a tornado? Have they ever been in a really serious thunderstorm? Have they ever experienced creation's wrath? God does not reveal his love and his concern for you in nature. It's sort of benign. Yes, it's beautiful. But it doesn't shout, God loves you. So in the visible thing, God hides himself. That's not really what God's about. But God reveals himself when he hides himself. Where does he hide himself? At the cross. In suffering. And what does God reveal? He reveals his heart. He reveals how much he loves you. He reveals his mercy, his compassion, his love, his forgiveness to the nth degree. The place where nobody would say, oh, look at Jesus up on the cross. That's God. Nobody said that on Good Friday. They taunted him. Okay. Mr. Christ, if God loves you, come on down from the cross. Couldn't do it because he loves us. Now, Luther's 19th thesis where he says we, we see God's love where he hides himself at the cross and he says, cross and suffering, he's not just talking about Jesus, he's talking about you. That it's through your suffering that God's love will become brighter, stronger. So how does that happen? Well, The second thing we need to hear is from John 9, where Jesus says, this man was born blind that he might show forth the works of God. Now, again, we immediately go to the miracle of restored sight, and we say, oh, that's it. No, 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 no. The word works is a specific word that means something very specific. 
It means redemption. And redemption means to pay a price to get you out of slavery. So what are we in slavery to? We're in slavery to ourselves. We're self-centered. We focus on ourselves. We think we're boss of our lives. We think we can handle anything by ourselves. Guess what suffering does? Suffering yells and screams and says, you're not the boss of your life. You're not in control. So what is Christ redeeming us from? Well, all of us have something that we think if we have that, we'll have worth and significance, we'll have value and meaning. And we struggle for that. We struggle mightily for that. We seek that. We desire that. And we think if we only have that. And you know what we're saying? We're saying, I'm my own savior. I can save myself if I just have that. My life is worth living. My life has meaning. And you need to be redeemed from that slavery. You need to be freed from that foolishness, that idiocy, or is it idiocy? Which one is it? Idiocy sounds better. And the only thing that can shake you out of your self-delusion is suffering. Is when you experience something that is so difficult that you can't handle it. Now, incidentally, if a Redeemer ever gets the sign that people can see on the main road and then has a message board on it, one of the first messages I want to put on there is, when you're down to nothing, God is up to something. Look at your own life. Look at your own experience. Isn't it the most difficult times that you've learned the most about yourself and you relied the most on God's love? One year for Christmas, my daughter, who was attending Whitworth in Spokane, gave me a book by one of her professors. And the name of the book was A Grace Disguised. And it tells the story how he and his family went to a powwow in Walla Walla. Try saying that three times fast. <laughs> and they had a great day, and on the way home, he was hit head-on by another car. And before the emergency vehicles and the emergency personnel could get there, his mother, his wife, and his youngest daughter died in his arms. And one of the things that really struck me in the book is he said, every time I went to communion, I cried. Because I knew who Jesus was and what he had done. 
I knew my family members, though they were not with me, they were safe. They were home. You can only learn such lessons through difficulty. You can only learn to give up on yourself and to rely upon Christ and his love in struggle. You can only learn that you're not king and savior of the world through suffering. Paul, in our epistle lesson, says it so briefly but so poignantly. We glory in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance. Endurance, character, and character, hope. And hope will never disappoint you because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So ask yourself, when you face a struggle, when you suffer, are you bitter or are you becoming better? Do you become harder or do you become softer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in all times of life you impress upon us how crucial, how significant, how important Jesus is to our lives now and forever. We ask in his name. Amen.